everybody, this is Charles Hain. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of Thanksgiving, November 26th, 2020. I am here with Editor-in-Chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. Uh, writer for No Film School, Oakley Anderson Moore. Hello. And writer for No Film School, Michelle De La Tour. Hi, everyone. This week, we are going to be talking about the deal that has been forged between Cinemark and Universal, which follows up on another deal from AMC to figure out how the movie distribution world's going to change. We're going to be talking about not one, but two books coming from Quentin Tarantino. In tech news, we're going to be talking about hands-on with the new Apple Silicon. We've got an Ask No Film School about a cinema camera under $10,000. And we've got all that and a deep cuts about the attitude of gratitude. All that this week <laughs> on the No Film School podcast. All right, our top story this week, Universal and Cinemark have cut a deal, which means following up on the deal Universal made with AMC, the two major players in theatrical distribution have now started cutting deals with distributors. You know, Universal is uh, distributing their own projects. Uh in figuring out how the world is going to look once we're able to get back in theaters. At this point, I think there's three prominent vaccines that look like are going to be in mass distribution by the spring. Um, so, you know, there's the possibility that summer blockbuster season might be real again in North America. It probably won't be what it was summer of 2019, but it could be something. And everyone is scrambling to figure out how that is going to work because we spent this year, I mean, by the time the vaccines roll out, it will have been a year, primarily consuming all of our content on our home screens. We've gotten very used to that as a society. And uh, the theaters would like butts back in seats, of course. And I think everybody on this podcast probably can't wait to get back in a movie theater and watch something. And what's interesting is uh, we are seeing the closing of the window. Now, this has been coming for 20 years or more. I mean, I remember, um, you know, day and date releasing has been something that people have been talking about day and date, meaning it would come out in theatrical and home video on the same day. I mean, that's something that indie films have been pushing for a while. Soderbergh was really into it. I think bubble was day and date. Um, and the idea being that it's one marketing spend as opposed to spending marketing money on theatrical and then another batch of marketing money on home video, you could spend all of your marketing budget all at once, get the biggest bang for your buck. Also get some discounts on your ad buys, right? Because the more ads you buy, the cheaper they get per ad um, by doing it all at once. The pushback from filmmakers and from a lot of people has always been, well, I would rather them actually see it in the movie theater. So, And if the movie is on home video and in the theater, maybe there's people who will just watch it on home video. So let's do it theatrical first for the, and then the people who can't wait will go. And then we'll, you know, the extra revenue will be so much and maybe we'll get some people to pay for it twice. People see it in the theater and buy it in home video or rent it that it's worth it to do the double spend. But what we're really seeing here with this deal um, and the movie theaters have always really pushed for a longer window, the window being how long it's theatrically exclusive before it can be on home video. Um, and what we're seeing is the theaters uh, agreeing to shorter windows. So under this agreement, Universal can put new movies on premium VOD as few as 17 days after release, which is uh, a big deal. Now, to protect theaters, the blockbusters, any movie that generates more than $50 million opening weekends has to play theatrically for 31 days or five full weekends. But even that, five full weekends, is a short window. Right. Like even that number, which is the longer number for the blockbusters is, you know, 15 years ago, the idea, I mean, in the nineties, it was a nine month theatrical window. Like it was, you know, it was like making a baby, how long you had to wait for a movie to hit home video. Obviously the window has been shortening and shortening, but we were still looking at three or four months in 2018, 2019. And this 31 day window is, is very short. This is going to allow a lot of cost savings at distributors. I mean, we're going to see combined marketing blitzes where, you know, that initial theatrical marketing push tries to push it over both hurdles and tries to cover the home video push as well, um, which is going to be interesting. I think that's one way they're going to try and save money through this. 
And I think they're going to try and, you know, get the, to recoup more quickly. I mean, this is a bummer, honestly, for me. I love seeing movies in the movie theaters, but if the movie theaters are agreeing to this, it seems like they think they can still survive by doing this. You know, it's nice to have Oakley and Michelle on here. We have a full house today. It's uh, never happened before. I want to hear before. what you guys think. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's never happened. So it's it's thrilling. <laughs> it's it's nice to have 50-50 representation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, to your point, Charles, about, you know, that this seems sad, just to play devil's advocate, I'm wondering if the windows keep getting shorter and shorter, what if this is actually something that could help the theatrical run seem like more of a something that's so brief that you're going to want to go and see it in theaters sooner than later. Cause they're in the, in the like DIY or indie releasing world. I see a lot like what's being more, what's, what's popular. You have people doing like one screening in like 50 theaters just for one day. So it's a very rare exclusive event and you can only see it this, you know, for one day it actually gets people to come out and go to the movies. I mean, pre COVID, so what if having, you know, the windows were already getting shorter, what if really making them a lot shorter actually might help convince people to go and see them, uh, you know, in that shorter window? Because, you know, opening night of a film or opening week, it's always, you know, you might get a packed theater, but a few weeks later, especially the smaller the film, you know, you're in there with like two other people and you're like, wow, how is this, you know, really working for for this film? I don't know. What about the fact that it's a more rare experience if they shorten the window to like an actually short, like three months isn't really short, but you know, you said 15 days. I mean, that's pretty short. I keep thinking about how (laughs) when I was a kid asking my dad, how long it would be after a movie was out before you would be able to see it like on VHS or something. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like about a year. And I remember thinking it was about a year. The context of movies being released in a theater and perhaps not being seen again is so alien to everyone. But that's the format. The artistic format of the movie began and lived for so long as a experience you had in a theater. Maybe you'd catch a second run on one channel that replayed movies. But unless you had a projector at home until VHS came when I was like in the 80s, like, I just, there was, so now I think that what gets lost sometimes in talking about it, um, and some filmmakers don't care about this side of things, but I do. Uh, The format was created and honed under certain circumstances, like how you tell the story, why you tell the stories the way you do, like why it's a certain number of minutes, why, like all of these things were built around this idea, like why an establishing shot is as wide as it is, is because it was in a theater, you know, it so changes what you do and how you tell a story. I personally, I've been saying for a while, like I've been hammering hard on the like, it's dying and it's dead thing. (laughs) I kind of think that everyone's going to be so thrilled, like Charles, like you mentioned, Charles, when we can finally go back to a theater to see a movie. I kind of think that there's going to be a bit of a, a, a over demand for a little bit. The way you study film and the, the films we honor and love are, were made purely to be seen in a theatrical experience only in the last 15, 20 years, was it really a main consideration? Like you're going to see these movies at home or in the home theatrical or whatever. So that's where my mind goes. It's just that movies were meant for a long time to only be seen a certain way. It was the only way you could see them. I have two questions. I have one question and one reaction. And the question I have is based on this, does this mean if a film does well that it would delay it's VOD yes. release, so we're constantly kind yeah. of like, oh, it's not two weeks, actually, three weeks or whatever. Like they have to constantly restructure their release time based on how could they- be potentially awesome too, right? Because if that happens, it's like, oh, you gotta go see it in the theater. You can't wait. Like every, like you know, like mm-hmm. it, would, it would create this like need to go see it in the theater. Like the snowball would build as it's going downhill because like you can't get it on VOD, but everybody's talking about it, kind of thing. Well, also, theoretically, a movie could make $49.99 million one weekend <laughs> and be like, oh, I guess we're going to VOD in two weeks because we didn't hit Fiddy. For context, how many, how much money 
are movies making right now in opening weekend ticket sales? Like how likely, it sounds fairly unlikely that something would hit a 50 million opening. In 2020, they're making like $180,000. Right, exactly. In 2020, it's not happening, but like vaccine, guys, we got to believe, we got to believe. I'm just looking at weekend domestic box office, November 20th to 22nd. It looks like Freaky led the way with a $1 million gross. Whoa, that's huge. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's that's not bad. The War with Grandpa made (laughs) $750,000. And it was released on October 9th. I mean, this is just... This is weird. We live in a weird timeline. We do. The War yeah. with Grandpa is a Robert De Niro comedy that made less than a million dollars, and it's number two over the weekend. Like, what the? What is going on, people <laughs> in the world? <laughs> I have to think that like Oscar contenders that were small that can go right to VOD and not have to necessarily lose out or spend money advertising in a theater are enjoying this a little bit. I imagine, right? Like, if you're That's if you wanted point. to see. I don't know when Nomadland comes out, but I'm using it as an example. Like, that's has a couple of big names attached. Do I think it would do $50 million in open weekend? No. Like, probably under a normal circumstance, I don't think it would. Definitely probably not under this circumstance. But if they get a big distribution sale because they think people will watch it in their homes, like, that's a strong win. I, so there are some things I wonder I, – I keep wondering if this will stand when we return back to quote-unquote normal – whatever new normal is like will we will this stay this 50 million situation um and how this changes things going forward i mean if we have theaters in existence still when we come out of this i imagine we will uh i have to say that the facebook ads for amc like drive me kind of crazy like they're like buy five dollars to go see santa claus this weekend and i'm like i really want you to survive but i'm also never gonna step foot in a theater um <laughs> and i like i don't know what the middle ground is i don't know how as a as a person who enjoys, I was really pulling for a 19 for Wonder Woman 1984 to come to a theater. Like I wanted to see that with people. I knew I wasn't going to be able to do that for a year and I was willing to be like, open it next summer so I can see it with people. (laughs) And now I'm seeing it with family, you know, like in December when it opens on Christmas, which is fine. But, and I don't know how to support my biggest, my, my, one of my largest questions is, there are other ways we know how to support other businesses in the middle of the pandemic. I don't know how to support like AMC without going to see a movie, like without going to see a movie. Like I want them to survive, but I can't like, what are they going to do? Like mail me, maybe they'll mail me like movie popcorn to like watch at my at home experience. Like I don't know how to support them. And That's I'm an not interesting question. going to buy the, the AMC movie pass equivalent, you know, right now. So they're not getting guaranteed income from me, but I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to make them live. It's funny because I was thinking about how, you know, how in this country we have this sad situation where people end up having medical bills. And so they do like a Kickstarter to pay it because that's how you get help. Um, because we don't all have health care and we don't all have good health care. We often get denied coverage and it sucks. Um and the, it, the idea popped into my head was like, does AMC need a Kickstarter Probably. <laughs> to, keep, to keep it afloat? And is that like the classic, that just feels like such a uniquely American mess right now to have. But I feel like, I guess in my vision of the way things should go, the government should help prop it up. And that as it has other businesses and industries. And I know that gets complicated and maybe far afield from where we want to be. But like, I just feel like one of the things I've done during this time personally is I've tried to support the businesses I would be supporting anyway, even if I'm not taking full advantage of what they have to offer because I'm still working. So like, why should I save bucks here and there on my gym membership? The gym I belong to is a small business um, and I know the owner and it's not like 24 hour fitness, but it's like, I don't go, but I'm not going to stop paying for it because I want them to survive. Um, and I just feel like that's an unfortunate decision as a consumer that I have to make, but it's the right decision for me 
and I do I I don't know what the model is as it would apply to a movie theater. Like I see your point is like I can't buy like future tickets to Disneyland or AMC, you know, like to show my support. Nor would I, I don't think. And I think like that's one of the essential problems to why movie theaters, big and small, and any live venue event place is really struggling right now because we can't, you know, we're not going to be able to save them because there's nothing for us to buy except for like gift certificates for future things. And that's the same exact reason why the current like CARES Act isn't helping uh, movie theaters and and small theaters and all these live events is because, you know, one of the bis- basic things of CARES is is PPP, the, the payroll protection. But payroll protection, you can only get that money unless if you, you can only get that money if you're still employing people at the exact same way you were before the pandemic. But the truth is that if you're in the business of getting a lot of people together in a group, <laughs> there's no possible way to continue that business. So, you know, like the local movie theater or the local theater that does live events and movies in Flagstaff, they, they were just explaining to me that they can't apply, they can't get payroll protection because it just becomes a loan that you have to pay back if you're not keeping your payroll up, but there's no way that they can possibly, you know, they tried a few things, but but the the bread and butter of their business is getting a large group of people inside their doors. And that's just like, there's no, it's not like a restaurant that can pivot to being takeout. You know, there's, there's not a takeout version for movie theaters. I don't think we can save um, movie theaters just on our own because there's, as, as just an individual person, you know, there's nothing you can really support or buy. And the government is probably their own, the only option. But it's currently, that's why it's not working for them because they're not, because live events just don't figure into the kind of way that the, the, the current, you know, CARES Act is, is set up. Well, shouldn't all the movie theaters just learn to code? <laughs> Should they? <laughs> I do think if they just shipped me movie theater popcorn and treats to watch with my VOD, uh-huh. I would do that. Like, there's not an AMC in my town right now, but there's a local movie theater that's still running stuff. But if they, I don't know, if you bought a VOD through, I don't, if you, I know AMC has, I think, online VOD. I'm going to use it as an example. You bought an AMC thing and they're like, oh, and you can add traditional movie theater snacks and we're going to drive them and drop them off at your place to watch the movie. I That would be cool. I like Hot, that. fresh movie theater popcorn. <laughs> and then they're making money because that's what they make money on. I Like, I don't know. I don't have it's the an answer theory. and that makes me... I mean, no one has the answer to so many things right now, and that makes many of us frustrated. No, I like that idea. Solvers. Yeah. But, I mean, I hate I movie know. theater popcorn, but I like that idea. What? <laughs> <laughs> this is kind of making me think a lot about what film festivals are doing right now, because they're kind of having this exact issue, uh, you know, what to do, how to get people to still pay them to see a movie kind of things, and, you know, mailing, like, real-life gifts so you could – watch together. And I think, you know, there is this possibility of how to have that collective experience virtually. And that's what, you know, we're kind of just in this generation of trying to figure that out anyways before COVID. But yeah, that's a good idea. What if you send out popcorn? What if you look to what film festivals are doing? What they're doing is having live Q&As after the screening. And they're having, you know, like um, I recently, Brave New Wild, my documentary was screened as as a fundraiser for Bay Area uh, Climate Coalition. And they had like live trivia on Facebook while they were screening the film. So you got got the feeling that it was like a fun audience participation that was lacking. So maybe there is something in there that theaters could really do, which involves somehow, you know, how do you actually, to the best of your abilities, take the fun part of being, having a, a collective audience experience, you know, how can you take that off into these private living rooms, but still connect and maybe it does involve sending like Reese's penises and and popcorn in the mail. Well, I was joking with a friend that like what Sundance really needs to do is they need to arrange certain times where everybody goes and stands outside in the cold for an hour before <laughs> like one of their online virtual screenings. <laughs> so that like, yeah. you know, we all share in that moment of, okay, <laughs> like we're at Sundance right now and we're all on Zoom, but we're standing outside. Somebody should stand in a puddle. And like, if you're in a warm place, you should find like, 
like Sundance should license a bunch of like freezer units in Mexico <laughs> City that you could go stand inside for an hour to really capture the yeah. like to give us that communal because that is one of the things that like is so signature is like standing outside in the cold. With that, let's talk about another filmmaker's strategy for dealing with creating media during the pandemic. The much discussed, is there anyone we talk about more than um, uh, Quentin Tarantulino? Uh, <laughs> Quentin Tarantino, hilariously parodied as Quentin Tarantulino on the uh, wonderful show Bojack Horseman, uh, has announced that he has um, continued to be creative during the pandemic, which... Uh, I know everybody decided they were going to be creative during the pandemic. And if you failed, you <laughs> should feel intense shame. Um, actually, Uh-oh. no, you should be nice to yourself. This was a period of national trauma. If you weren't creative during the pandemic, that's okay. Uh, especially because you still are have hard. time. It's still here. Yeah. yeah, it hasn't gone anywhere. You're right. Um, <laughs> but he wrote not one. He has a, a deal for not one, but two books. Uh, one is a book about film criticism for the films of the 1970s, which like I love so much because like one of the things that frustrates me so much is there'll be a movie I love and I want to read about it. And unless it's one of like the 10 biggest movies of all time, it's hard to find a bunch of other thoughts about it. And film criticism tends to be about movies that are about to come out. And so they avoid talking about the ending. They avoid talking about like no spoilers or whatever. And so it's like, it's great, but like, I also, if I fell in love with a movie and I want to read a lot about it, I would love to read an essay that wasn't worried about spoiling the ending, but just really digging into a passion about a movie. So I think more people should write books about like 70s criticism. Obviously, there's the whole world of cinema studies and some of that is very fun, but some of that also gets a little academic for me. And I think that Tarantino will probably just really lean into fanboy deliciousness um in his obsession on these so it's great there are obviously a lot of great books in this but there can always be more and i'm excited about that but then the other book is a novelization of once upon a time in hollywood a movie that came out a year ago that he probably shot two years ago so two years after shooting he is still thinking about these characters enough that he wants to write the novelization and he was saying part of it is because he grew up re- reading a lot of novelizations of movies. I also read some novelizations of movies as a kid in the 80s and really kind of like dug them. It's a bizarre format because it's like going from book to movie is something we culturally accept. We're like, oh, last picture show, great movie, the book, great book. They are both independent and respected cultural things that exist. I cannot think of a single movie to book that gets any respect hmm. at all. And so it's interesting to, um, you know, is is he going to do what he did for um, John Travolta's career to the movie novelization? I have long suspected that he writes his scripts more like he's writing a novel and then he turns them into, and maybe he's even said he does this. And then he turns them into a shooting script or a screenplay. The way he writes feels more, not just because he's always talking about chapters and things like that, but just the whole feel feels more like the, the, the writing of a story that's narrated, maybe third person. Often that makes its way into his scripts. It just feels like he's written a novel sort of and found a way to turn it into a shooting script. And I'm curious if that's part of why he can do this and he's motivated to do it because he's like, well, I have all the extra. Because don't you guys get the feeling with his movies that for every like thing that you hear, every word that you end up hearing, hearing someone say, there were probably paragraphs and paragraphs behind it just about like what the guy had been up to the week before or something. Because <laughs> like some of that makes it into his script in narration form. But you just feel like his voice is writing you pages and pages and pages about just like that one shot, you know? So that to me, it doesn't surprise me. And I, and I think it's an exciting, cool thing. I think we can learn a lot from this too. If you, in some ways, if you can't write a novel. Direct. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> and if you can't direct, write film. No, 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 no. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> no, no. I don't need Quentin Tarantino coming after me for something I didn't say. The, uh, no, if it, it makes me think of of story and characters like George, you were just saying in terms of if he's still thinking about this, these characters in the story months, years later, 
But it is interesting to me, if you're able to write a full-fledged novel based on the screenplay that you wrote, then you did write like good characters and stories and et cetera. But if you can't, like if, if those, you know, if you're like, oh, it would be interesting for me to change this script into a novel, but the but the characters don't don't have enough depth or your stories don't have enough like suspense or potential like maybe that means that the script needs to be tweaked which i think is interesting i i didn't realize it until we were talking about it in terms of like how much detail that tarantino knows about these characters and their backstories and all these things like that's probably the detail we we might need <laughs> to make a script like this work i am interested i also think that um Tarantino's at a place where he can probably do whatever he wants. So like he went to Harper and said, I really want to publish a book that wasn't or a novel that wasn't Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or cinema uh, criticism. He probably would be able to because it's Tarantino. I think he's allowed to do whatever he wants. Yeah, exciting for them from the perspective of like, oh, we might actually sell more books. But it's interesting. I think that you're right that they probably are potentially like books first. And that's why we still have paragraphs of um, dialogue or long shots um, in those films. We'll see how it goes. I do like that it, you can transfer your things into, you know, for in the middle of speaking of being creative in the middle of a pandemic, if you were hoping to make a film and many of us were, maybe if we're if you're if you're desperate to feel like you have to get something out in the next month or so, maybe it turns into a book. I don't know. There are there are that's a possibility. And then you can maybe go easier from book to film if it's already published in like a book form. Go ahead, Oakley. I think I cut someone off. No, no, I, I have no opinion. It sounds kind of boring. I probably wouldn't read it, but um, <laughs> I, like I appreciate that, that so much. Respect. Like, I'm not going to read it either, but I love that. it. <laughs> and with that, moving on to tech news. <laughs> so our top tech news story this week, we got hands-on with the Apple Silicon and we used it for filmmaking to see if it would hold up to the rigors of cinema. A bit of context first. Every 16 years or so, Apple changes the uh, architecture of their CPUs. So, you know, uh, Windows run on Intel. Windows have run on Intel since the 80s, and they still run on in when Intel. But, um, you know... Uh, the x86 architecture is what uh, Windows has just run on forever. But Apple keeps mixing it up. Uh, when I entered the industry in the late 90s, early 2000s, Apple ran on something called PowerPC. And then uh, in 2006, they moved over to um, Intel processors, which filmmakers were super excited about. And now it's 2020. And they're moving over to what is called Apple Silicon, which is actually built on what's called the ARM ARM architecture. And if, you're, if you've heard of ARM before, it's probably because it is what is in your phone. Mobile phones, iPads, all of these run on ARM architecture. So uh, ARM architecture and the new Apple Silicon is designed to be super powerful but not use much electricity, which is why you see it in mobile phones where the battery is supposed to last all day and sometimes it even does. And um, But doing like full-size ARM laptops and eventually desktops hasn't really happened yet. And Apple's making a pretty bold move, in my opinion, to move their hardware over to ARM. The benefits are, you know, there's some obvious benefits, like now an app that runs on your phone is also going to run on your computer. So if you have a favorite filmmaking app, like uh, Artemis Pro is one of my favorites. I still can't believe we have no Artemis Pro articles up. I've got to write one eventually. Um, but it's, you know, it's one of the viewfinder apps, but it's a really nice one. And now you can run apps that run on your phone on your computer. So there's huge benefits for filmmakers there. But Apple's actually making a stronger case than that. Uh, what they're doing is traditionally in, you know, Intel computers, you have a CPU, which does your processing and a GPU, which shows your graphics. And they each had their own memory. And filmmakers, we want a powerful GPU because it's going to make editing faster, color grading faster, and we want it to have as much memory as it can. But like you might buy a laptop that has 16 gigabytes of system RAM and your GPU might only have two or four gigabytes of RAM, which isn't, you know, a huge amount. Now with ARM, Apple, with Apple Silicon, Apple is also building the computer such a way where both the CPU, the processor, and the GPU, which is graphics, can access the same, what they're calling unified memory. And according to Apple's marketing, this is going to make these machines super more powerful, especially in graphics, while simultaneously lasting longer on batter, 
battery and using less, less electricity. A lot of great marketing info, but we wanted to actually put it through its paces and see if it worked. So um, now I usually recommend the 16 inch MacBook Pro. That's like the computer for filmmakers, in my opinion. But a lot of my students buy the 13-inch, and they've only come out with the 13-inch MacBook Pro for Apple Silicon so far. So we put the 13-inch MacBook Pro Apple Silicon up against the most recent 13-inch Intel MacBook Pro that only came out in May. So it's like super new. That 13-inch from May, the Intel, had twice the RAM. It had 32 gigabytes of RAM. And the new Apple Silicon, the most you can get is 16 gigabytes. So it only had 16 gigabytes. Otherwise, they were pretty comparable machines, although the specs don't quite match because ARM is different than Intel. And uh, so if you're wondering, like, okay, well, this is great for iPad apps, but, like, what about apps that, like, normal apps? So some apps have been optimized for ARM. DaVinci Resolve 17 has been built to natively run on ARM. But if you have an older app... uh, Apple has built like an emulation layer called Rosetta or Rosetta 2 to run the older software. All of Adobe is not updated yet, which like, seriously, Adobe, you're huge. You make billions of dollars a quarter. You have a huge development team. How are you not optimized for Apple Silicon already? It's ridiculous. Um, But it's not. And it it was kind of great that it wasn't because it allowed us to test in both an app that is optimized, Resolve, and an app that's not, um, Premiere. And they both were dynamite. They were both killer. Like, uh, renders were faster on the new machine, which, like, new machine faster is not big news, but, like, an ARM machine, a machine that's running, like, uh, hardware we've previously only thought of as mobile-ready, being faster than an Intel machine was killer. I mean, renders that took 30 seconds in Premiere on the, the Intel machine took 20 seconds in um, on the new ARM. And that was in Premiere, which is running in an emulation because Premiere is not natively ready for Apple Silicon yet. So it's like, it's basically like it has a translator translating its commands to ARM. So, I mean, this is killer. I mean, if you're doing a feature and you can shave a 30 minute render down to a 20 minute render, that's huge. Like that's a big change to your workflow throughout the day a 30 percent improvement in render time for a machine that has half as much ram is killer uh i ran a whole bunch of programs they all seemed to work great it was totally like a uh, you know i was initially kind of reluctant i kind of had this secret plan where i was like okay i'm gonna buy whatever the 2020 16 inch intel is and just have like the most powerful intel machine around and then i'm gonna wait to move to apple silicon honestly having played with it I think you should just, if you're thinking about an Apple, you should just get an Apple Silicon. And if you're thinking about a 16 inch, maybe you wait until it comes out because it's kind of crazy how well it all works. Um, I only had one problem the whole time, which is Resolve 17 on the Intel machine couldn't open 12K Blackmagic RAW files. That was it. Everything else worked. And I went through the original transition from PowerPC to Intel owning a post house. And I remember, like, it happens fast. Like, you think, oh, PowerPC has been around for 14 years, 16 years at that point. Like, it's going to be fine. But in reality, within two years, our PowerPC Macs were basically useless. Like, we had one at reception, and then eventually the database software that we were using wouldn't run on it, like, to manage calls and contacts. So it just went in a closet. And like that was a machine that was $3,000 when we got it in 2005. And by 2008, it was sort of like, so like, I kind of think if you're an Apple person, you should just move over to Apple Silicon. Like I'm not going to buy the 16. If, if a new 16 inch MacBook Pro comes out this fall, which I don't know if it will, I'd been thinking I was going to get it and I might not, I might just get a 13 inch Silicon and live with it. It was, it's, it's. It's impressive how well Rosetta 2 worked. And now I can't wait to see what happens when Premiere is actually native for... When you say fast, how fast do you think? 30% faster? Scary. No, no, I mean, how fast will it change? Will we all need to switch? That's what I mean. Well, so the, the... I mean, I think that Apple came out with an Intel-based Mac Pro in 2019. Apple is usually pretty good about... For the Mac Pros, for the big stuff, five or six years of support. So I think if you are using normal mainstream, non-weird apps, you have till 2024, 
where the Intel machines are going to continue to get good support out of Apple, good support out of software vendors, your Final Cut Pros, your Premieres, they'll have Intel versions. And what's what's true is that because they also, all of these companies, except for Final Cut Pro, also have Windows apps, keeping their Intel app updated and alive is actually relatively easy. So I think you're going to see a lot of support for those Intel apps. There was no reason to keep developing your PowerPC app except Apple. So when Apple moved off PowerPC, people were like, all right, I'm not going to keep updating that app. But like keeping your Mac Intel app updated in sync with the Windows Intel app is not going to be as hard. So I think 2024, 2025, I think you have four or five years where you will get reasonably good support for your Intel-based Apple products. However, if you are considering spending money right now, I would only buy a new Mac Pro today if I had a job that justified its whole expense. If I booked some sort of job where it was like, oh, this is $50,000 worth of work over the next six months, that makes sense. I'll spend $7,000 on a machine to make that faster. Fine. Short of that, if I didn't have specific work lined up to make the hardware, I don't know that a Mac Pro would make sense right now. Oh, the one big flag with Apple Silicon is that the eGPUs don't work. So if you use an external GPU that doesn't work with Apple Silicon, which makes sense if you think about it, because unified memory is so different. You know, all of the GPUs are using system memory. I suspect there will be a Apple Silicon driven eGPU at some point um, because eGPUs are great. But current, like none that are currently on the market will work with a current Apple Silicon. Um, yeah. So I think you're fine if you've invested in Intel Max. I don't think you need to sell it today. I think you will get four or five years of good support, but I would just like, it just doesn't feel, it just feels like, oh, okay, this is going to be a lot better. I don't need to, I can drag my feet until there's a 16 inch Apple Silicon and then jump on that. No, I was going to say, it's always interesting to just kind of track or, or keep your eye on how soon, how quickly the changes will take place and it'll be like necessary to get your stuff upgraded. Yeah, and I know the Hackintosh community has been kind of freaking out about about this little like, people, you know, in, in the forums they're like, is Hackintosh, is, is the Hackintosh dead? You know, as soon as Silicon gets here and people are already surmising what to do, but yeah, it's kind of like, what's the time frame? As a Hackintosh builder and wondering what I would do next, I'm like, I'll be watching how this goes. Uh, we're going to need you to do a new Hackintosh at some point. Ooh, cool. Let's do that. Let's talk about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> some of the most popular content for no film school has been your Hackintosh piece. <laughs> I so. know, which is which is awesome. But now I'm like, oh, shit, you know. Apple, like, will Apple Silicon kill the Hackintosh? That's what people are talking about right now. That is a great headline. I mean, I'm going to say because the Mac Pro came out in 2019, OS X is going to support the Intel architecture until at least there's no way. I mean, even Apple who do some crazy stuff, there's no way Apple's going to say, all right, here's a machine that starts at (laughs) $6,000. Like that's the starting price, six grand. And we're going to, we're going to EOL it end of life it two years later. Like it's, they're going to, that's going to be, and to be fair to Apple, Apple didn't EOL that Mac Pro. I mean, the the PowerPC um, Power Mac we were using. That, I think it still got updates until 2012. I think 2012 was the last year that like we could install the new Mac OS on that PowerPC where they were making both PowerPC and Intel versions. The reason why we ended up moving off of it wasn't Apple. Everything Apple made still ran on both. The reason we moved off of it was other applications we were using stopped developing for the power pc and i think that's less likely to happen here because it's intel right like if you also have your app on windows machines you're still developing for the intel architecture so you can just keep your mac version alive so i think we've got at least five more years where hackintoshes are a reasonable thing and let's not forget um you can build ARM Hackintoshes. Like, why not? You know, I mean, as ARM hardware gets cheaper and cheaper, I mean, there's ARM-based Windows systems. You can run, I mean, that's what a Microsoft Surface is. And you can install Windows on ARM. So I think that I would love to see an ARM Hackintosh article. Yeah. 
Yes. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah, I'll be curious to see. So I'm, you're not volunteering to write it? I wouldn't know how to do it, but I'm, you know, I'm following what all the actual geniuses are doing. And then once they've gotten something figured out that I can just uh, try out, then let's do it. Then you'll stand on the shoulder of geniuses. Exactly. It's worked for me so far. All right. And then up next, we have an Ask No Film School from Cameron Monument, which is a great last name. So Cameron is looking to buy, uh, has been working as a PA on big commercials and is looking to invest in a cinema camera to do some corporate and music video work, which I think is, is smart. Uh, when I started my career, I used to say, never buy anything, always make your client rent. But actually, you know, 20 years later, I know a bunch of people who've gotten a camera and it has helped them do personal projects. It has helped them book jobs. I think it is more and more reasonable to buy stuff. The goal is to keep the total budget around 10 grand. Uh, he's thinking about the C300 Mark II, the C200, the Ursa Mini Pro G2, and or maybe an FS7. But uh, what is he forgetting in the list that he should be thinking about instead? Uh, so I have some thoughts. I mean, my first thought is always $10,000. You should put 1500 bucks of that into a tripod. Like it's always like I've worked on so many projects where I'm like, oh, this is a $12,000 camera on a $600 tripod. Like this doesn't like, I can't make nice moves with this. So put 1500 bucks into a tackle or something, or, you know, there's nice Manfrotto's there's nice, lots of things. Um, so if you're looking at like a six to $8,000 camera budget, what are the, what are the things to be thinking about? I, so I'll just add one right off the bat. And that is my curiosity and I, my hunch because it's in a camera that we're going for is around XLR and audio situations. So if you're looking for an all in one unit that you can plug XLRs into, these are here, the ones that are listed make sense. If that's not the case and you're shooting music videos, um, I think you can look at different cameras. So I'm curious for this person what their hope is in terms of audio, because that makes a big difference when we're looking at camera bodies, whether or not what it supports, whether or not you need to buy extra things to support it. So if you're looking at the smaller units, so the pocket cinema camera or something like that, you need to get something extra if you're looking to plug in XLRs. So curious, that'd be one question for me heading into this is, sound if you already have something that you're looking in terms of capturing sound that would add into your budget um if you're not if you're not if you're having someone else record sound like those are i think that's a big question for me if i was heading into this is how i was hoping to capture sound um how, how that would change whether or not i wanted a run and gun kind of documentary unit or not that's one piece I mean, for me, the two cameras that are missing from your list are the C70 and the FX6. I was going to say those two. Keep going. Um, and the reason why is everything you listed is a little physically large for me. And I don't mind a physically large camera. I shot a movie, 35 millimeter anamorphic, all on a zoom lens, all with a thousand foot mag. Um, I was younger then. It was super, it was all handheld. It was great fun. I think the whole camera package was like 39 pounds. So I'm not saying a camera always has to be small. But I'm saying if I was out there right now trying to do something to book a bunch of music videos with, I would want something that I could really easily rig in like the Ronin S2, which just came out or, you know, another stabilizer or I could do handheld stuff or I could do all of that rigging with. And the compact bodies you get with the Sony FX6 and the Canon C70 or the Red Komodo, which just came out and is $6,000 body only, which would make it tight to put together a $10,000 package, but not impossible depending upon what lenses you got. These cameras, I think, give you a flexibility on moving the camera. And that is like the defining feature of music videos. Obviously, there are static shots in music videos, but the vast majority of music video work, you want a camera that you can freely and dynamically move in interchange with the artist, in interchange with the performer or dancers or whatever's going on there. And so I would really put those sort of forefront at my list. Now, as Michelle pointed out, they don't have full-size audio inputs. Um, now, the FX6, I'm not the world's biggest Sony fan. I, I'm very upfront about that. Uh, the colors aren't my color, you know, like I like the color science a little better in Canon. I like the color science a little better in red, uh, black magic 12 K. I really like the color science. And obviously my favorite color science is Alexa. Um, I actually 
I stopped uh, the crown season four just came out and I stopped episode one. Cause I was like, this doesn't look like season one through three. This looks like Sony. So I paused it and looked it up and they switched to Sony Venice. Um, I can understand their reasons for doing it, but like, it's noticeable to me, like even the crown, a huge budget show with all the power they need and color grading to make it look like whatever they want. I, I still was like, this is Sony. Like I, I can just feel it. Other people love it. There's people obsessed with it. Sony Venice is a huge hit. Obviously, The Crown season four is still great. But it's just, it's everybody has a different taste. Um, but I think you got to look at the FX6 and the C70 because that smaller body, you could find yourself getting a, an RS2 Ronin and a lightweight lens and being able to get some really cool shots that like, as much as the C300 Mark II and the C200 are nice, they've got that weird viewfinder, which means you need a bigger gimbal, which makes them hard to stable, harder to stabilize. As much as the Ursa Mini Pro G2 is great and I love its slow-mo, it's a big physical body. Um, and the same with the FS7. Um, the FX9 is great, but that's $10,000 body only, so it's probably out of your budget. If you're going to go red, you mentioned a used Dragon 6K, but if you're going to go red, just get a Komodo. Um, brand new doesn't matter. And they've done, from what I hear, I have a buddy who just bought one who's like, oh, it's it's red, but without the noise issues. And that sounds really exciting because red has some noise issues. So um, yeah, it, it is cool. All of it is going to have sacrifices on the corporate jobs. As others were pointing out, like when you do those corporate jobs, you want full-size XLR inputs. Sony, the FX6 comes with an FX, uh, an XLR breakout box, which is really nice. It, like you don't have to buy it extra. If you want four XLRs, you have to buy an extra one. But it comes natively with two. But it comes. What's nice is it comes with two in a box that breaks off. So when you don't need it, like when it's on a stabilizer or gimbal, you can take them off, and you're saving yourself the weight, which I think is a really nice design. I actually think that that's the appropriate way to do it. Well done, Sony. Um, and the color is getting better in Sony. They're really putting a lot of work into that. Um, I think those are where I would be looking in this price point. Um, I love the color in the uh, Blackmagic 12K, but $10,000 body, so it's out of your budget. If $10,000 was my all-in thing and I needed glass and tripod and media, those three cameras, Komodo C70, FX6, are, am I forgetting something? Should I be suggesting getting a Blackmagic Pocket 6K for three grand and then having more money for lenses? Only if they're not recording audio. That's what I would have pitched for a music video. You know, potentially, or yeah. you know, like an A7S4 or whatever, whatever. Sorry, that's not right. That's not the right acronym. Or something in the Sony DSLR line. But I think that, to me, that's actually, those are two different things. Like small corporate videos and music videos. And I don't know if they're, you know, I think the ones that you listed are probably the ones that you might use in both. But there's a huge yeah. price difference between those, right? And so that's that, to me, is the key. I think those are two different things. Um, and one is cheaper than the other by a long shot. Um, the music video setup likely. Um, if you're if you're going to go with a something like the pocket, you know, black magic camera. Of the two things you're listing, you can have an amazing music video setup for less. But a corporate job, you're going out. They're assuming an eight hour day. You could be doing something where you're shooting interviews with the CEO for eight hours. Like that is that's possible, or interviews with people for eight hours straight. As much as the A7S3 looks great and the Black Magic Pocket 6K look great you don't want to do eight hours of interviews on those cameras dealing with the audio sync issues, dealing with overheating, dealing with their tiny batteries. Like they're not cameras designed for an eight hour long series of corporate interviews, which is like, you know, when you do corporate work, that might be your day. And that's when you're going to want a real camera with a bigger battery that's easier to swap out and real audio. And that's what I think limits you. But you also probably are going to make more money off those corporate days than you are off your music video days. <laughs> So charge so you could rent a corporate. I mean, the renting is still there. You know, you could rent. It's more expensive to rent something like a C two hundred for your corporate days, but usually I find that that would be the place where you could list it. It's like the best camera for this job would be this. Like, do you could we consider renting it for this project, and then, you know, spend your less than ten grand on a music video setup that sounds more mobile. So there's some options. I would have said C seventy and FX six two because they just feel forward facing. Like. They're new. I feel like Canon's going to put more time and energy into those RF, into those new lenses, the new yeah. mounts. Uh, I just pitched this the other day, actually, uh, having tested a C200, but then realizing that the C70, when it comes out, it's going to be the same price as the C200 body. So 
I would do that, but it's going to be expensive. The RF glass is going to be pricey, very pricey when it first starts. But you could you but could do C70 with EF glass. You can. Yes, It'll that's true. Work. And there's a hundred million EF lenses in the world. So many, and you could yes. So we no. I, mean, I don't know. I think if we I saw that in a Canon press more. release. Like I think there are a hundred million EF lenses on Earth, according to one Canon press release. Like I, I could be remembering this wrong. This all could have happened in a dream. Tell me on Twitter if I'm insane for thinking that there's a hundred million Canon EF lenses on the planet. But those are the three. I think Komodo FX6 C70. I think those are the ones that'll help you. And now we're going to move on to Deep Cuts Gratitude. So I'm going to start. I'm grateful that my wife introduced me to a movie that I had never heard of, did not even know happened. I was alive when it came out and I completely missed. And it is directed by Jodie Foster. And it's called Home for the Holidays. Yes. That's amazing. And it is an amazing movie. It is Robert Downey Jr. and Holly Hunter playing brother and sister home with a um, complicated family for Thanksgiving. I've had some complicated family Thanksgivings in my life. And this movie, uh, you know, is is very enjoyable. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. is is great. It's And I'm grateful that this movie exists. And, and I think it is worth a look for anybody who is looking for a holiday movie that is not um it is not saccharine i actually have a relative who helped to develop saccharine that i've spent thanksgiving with um so i don't want to insult saccharine but the cultural <laughs> thing of saccharine is that it is it is like a treacly sweetness and uh, it is not actually sweet and this is like a movie that is actually like sweet about the holidays but is a um a realistic complicated family which not every holiday movie has. So uh, Home for the Holidays, Jodie Foster, um, famous mostly for being the director of The Beaver, but some of her early films also also worth looking at. I'm so happy you shared that film, Charles, because we watch it every like every year. And I it's just been a staple for so long, so I'm delighted. I think people should know that Jodie Foster directed it, and I'm delighted that you shared it. My, my pleasure. All right, who wants to go next? Oh, yeah, Michelle, you go. Go, Karoku, go. And then Michelle. Oh, no, gosh. go. Okay. <laughs> All right, I'll go. This is what happens. There's so many people on the line. Go, Cleo. Which, which girl is talking? I can't tell. Um. <laughs> Somebody else on the team. Oh, geez. Uh, please, please share your wisdom and your film. Yeah, let me, let me lay on you a classic. Another classic that would be my pick um, would be Adam's Family Values which is the 1993 <laughs> Adams Family movie where Pugsley and Wednesday get set to like the most stereotypical white Anglo-Saxon Protestant camp in the fall and they um, you know, suffer to watch the same movie over and over again and they have to celebrate Thanksgiving with all these other campers. And um, I think it's the Adams Family in this, in Adams Family Values is like a great antidote and just think that this was already being made, that the Adams family was already poking all this fun at sort of the like hegemony culture, if we do, if you can call it that. Back in 1993, this movie is hilarious. And um, I've seen people started to share it on social media and in memes leading up to the holidays. So I think it's a great one, especially if you're like um, using the camp to think about, you know, the, the dominant American culture ideas, if you call them dominant and how to poke fun at them. I think Adams family values is my deep cuts. Um, with that being said, I wanted to throw out a mention to another film that I'm going to watch because I've already seen Adam's Family Values, but there's a new film called Gather coming out, or that came out. That's actually what I'm going to watch on Thanksgiving. It's about indigenous food sovereignty, and um, it's, it's mm. yeah, and it's, it's a really- Sounds re- very appropriate. <laughs> yes, and it's a very cool film, and the, the filmmaker, Sanjay Rawal, and the, the producer, Tanya Melier, we've, we've had them on No Film School before. They're very cool filmmakers, and they made this interesting film following these different cool figures like um, Chef Nefi Craig and Twila Casadora, these really cool icons in indigenous food right now. So, you know, in time for this this Thanksgiving holiday, I'm going to be watching Gather because it looks amazing. But if you want to do a two-movie for one, I would go Adam's Family Values and then Gather. 
So I have two answers and one is classic and not a deep cut because everyone knows about it, but I will share it because it's the soundtrack to me that I have. I think I have it on vinyl somewhere um, and or two of them I have, whatever. I'm going to share two, one that I'm grateful for and one that's Thanksgiving. And I'll just say that um, a Charlie Brown Thanksgiving is classic. What I really love yeah. about it is that I like I I like Vince Guaraldi's score and comp- like compositions across all of the holiday ones. So there's the Charlie Brown Christmas, that's the classic one, and then there's the Thanksgiving one, and you can listen to all of them. And it's a very mature soundtrack for quote-unquote animated kids series, I think, Vince Guaraldi Trio. So I would... To me, that music signals this time of year, and I've listened to it my entire life. And so I have it, I can play it digitally. I think I have it on on vinyl. It feels nice and crackly and old. And I think that there's whatever you find, and particularly right now, like if there's something that brings you joy in movie or or audio or whatever it might be like this is the time you're allowed to do that right now like you're allowed to play those things over and over and like play them early you know a lot of folks who put up their tree really early this year because it just brought them joy and I feel like that's the least we can do to our sanity right now so if there's something that you also feel like brings you the worms and fuzzies like Vince Grawley does for me I think now you can be grateful for that and to play it and and to recognize it like now's the time to do so I said there was two, but I think I'm just going to leave it there. Um, find the things that make you feel grateful and happy and and warm and fuzzies. And I know that this year is going to be different on so many levels as folks, as Thanksgiving rolls around, as the holidays roll around. And I hope that everyone's kind of safe in what they're doing. But it is an opportunity to play and find those things that bring you joy. And And for me, that's some of the older soundtracks and things that Vince Guaraldi and the trio made for the Charlie Brown stuff. If you made it this far into the podcast, we are grateful for you. Thank you. And if you didn't make it this far into the podcast, we are grateful for you, but you don't know that wherever you are. But I do appreciate everybody who listens to the podcast, all the No Film School podcasts. We do our best. And please let us know what you think of us. Are we supposed to be doing our best? Yes, I'll get to it. (laughs) Uh, send us comments. <laughs> I'm just uh, I'm just sending that out there because you know I want to put that out there um, at ask at nofilmschool.com. My pick, my deep cut for Thanksgiving is not a movie, but an episode of a TV show, which I think is one of my favorite TV shows of all time, if not, which is the season one finale of Mad Men is an episode called The Wheel, and it is a Thanksgiving episode. And I just think it's the best episode of Mad Men. I think it captures everything the show has. Um, I think it's a brilliant cap to the season. And I think it's just, in essence, uh, it's about, you know, Don Draper, who has who's living two lives. He's a dual identity guy. And uh, his family is tearing him from work. And he does a pitch about Carousel and Kodak and it's all about nostalgia and about feelings of family. And it and it and the underpinning of it is the falsehood, uh, what you imagine it is versus what it really is. What you're selling about family and Thanksgiving versus what you're experiencing. And I think that dichotomy, that rift between um, the cultural, the, the salesman thing and the reality that we live is vast and we struggle to... Um, correlate those two things. And I think that's part of why classics like Home for the Holidays resonate, because it's about the reality, not the the fantasy. But Don Draper lives in this weird space between the two, and it's perfectly capped by the ending where he comes home imagining that his family is still there and everything is good, but they're not. And uh, Bob Dylan music plays, which, come on, doesn't get any better than that. So that, I just love it. And I think about it a lot. And I love that show. And I miss that show. Um, and uh, that's my deep cut for Thanksgiving. That's very, yeah. So touching. <laughs> and we are trying our best, I think. Um, all right. You can find me on the Instagram and the Twitter at Charles Hain. And I'm Oakley Anderson Moore. You can follow me um, on Instagram at Oakley Louise. I'm picking a new bumper sticker to put on my truck. So if you follow me, uh, then you can in- enter into such important discussions as that 
I would love to enter that discussion. Okay, That's good. Cool. <laughs> There's one. <laughs> nice. Plus is one. Visualized World Peas one of the candidates? Because uh, <laughs> that's such like a classic ninety yeah, bumper us, sticker. Give us a motto. Like what? Are, what do we? What do we have on the table? I yeah. Mean, what are the options? The sky's the limit, but it's not like a Bodie McBoface thing. Like I don't have to take your suggestions, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, the, sticker the, McSticker face <laughs> is not going to win. It. I mean, I guess it's it's in the running. Anything's in the running. I need something positive and funny to replace a sticker I have there already. So yeah, that's that's all I can say for now. The suspense. Is that going to get you to the go suspense. to my Instagram page? I don't know. <laughs> this is Michelle De La Tour. I hope to vote on Oakley's bumper sticker. It is really lovely to be back chatting with these creative folks. I've missed you all and I've missed you too, audience members. You can find me on Instagram at mdelator, M-D-E-L-A-T-E-U-R. I'm doing a little bit or a lot of screenwriting at the moment or trying to finally wrap some things together. So I will be open to any and all of your advice as I try and write stuff during the holiday breaks. And I look forward to chatting again with you soon. And I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. Thanks again for listening. I already kind of did this by just thanking everybody for being a No Film School listener. Um, go to the website. Uh, there was all kinds of content about the things we spoke about today, as well as other things, nofilmschool.com. We have some exciting gift guides up there for Black Friday and Cyber Monday and holiday gift guides. If you're looking to buy stuff and you're a filmmaker or you know a filmmaker, we have a lot of options and there's going to be more and more and those posts keep getting updated. Uh, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, like, subscribe to the podcast, share it with a friend, leave a comment, send us whatever you think. I genuinely mean that at ask at nofilmschool.com. I enjoy hearing from people who very much disagree with me or us, it's always interesting to me. So go ahead and give us a shout out. Thanks so much. 